Brilliant, where I explore the human side of work. I talk to business leaders, academics, authors, workplace experts, and other professionals about when they've worked at their best and when they floundered. We find out how to change organisations for the better so that everyone can flourish. Join us for a dose of honesty and positivity to help you and your organisation succeed. I'm your host, Helen Beedham, organisational expert, speaker, and author of the Amazon best-selling business book, The Future of Time, how reworking time can help you boost productivity, diversity, and well-being. You can catch the podcast on all major podcasting platforms, on YouTube, and on my website at helenbeedham.com, where you'll also find the show notes. I'd love to hear your views too. You can find me on LinkedIn and Instagram at Helen J. Beedham and on Twitter at Helen Beedham. Now let's crack on with this week's episode. Hello, I'm recording this on Friday the 20th of May. It's been pouring with rain all day so far and I suspect I'm coming down with my daughter's recent cold. It's amazing how much less cheerful you feel when there's no sign of the sun and your body's fighting off a bug. I've definitely lost my bounce today. So I'm being kind to myself. And once I've scheduled this podcast ready to air on Monday, I'm going to give myself the afternoon off, curl up and sit on the sofa with my reading challenge book this week, which is Monica Ali's Brick Lane. I'm really wanting to love this book, but I've been reading it in very snatched moments on and off during the week, and I've not really got going with it. But I am enjoying her style of writing. It manages to be understated and yet really evocative at the same time. The week this podcast airs, I'll be on to The Gendered Brain by Gina Rippon, which has been recommended to me over several months by various people. And next week, I'll be returning back to fiction and reading My Brilliant Friend by Elena Ferranti, another book and author I've heard people rave about. I need to discover them now. All these books for this year's reading challenge are on my website at helenbeedham.com forward slash 2022 reading challenge if you fancy joining me in reading any of them. On to news and developments about our world of work. And there's been quite a few articles and pieces of research in the press in the past week about how we're doing in the UK in terms of remote and hybrid working. The Financial Times highlighted some findings from WFH research about how the UK is leading Europe in terms of the proportion of its workforce that's working regularly from home. So if your organisation is trying to hark back to the old days of office presenteeism, push that research under their noses. Another article, this time in The Guardian, commented on how hybrid and remote working are fueling the renaissance of our smaller post-industrial cities and towns, which has got to be good news for all sorts of reasons. Disappointingly, the new employment bill was dropped from the Queen's speech, along with proposals to make flexible working the default and to protect the most vulnerable workers from discrimination and unpredictable hours. It'll be interesting to see what the government's new review to be led by MP Matt Warman 
into how we should shape our labour market in the future. We'll come up with in terms of proposals and more importantly, whether they'll actually be implemented or not. I'll put links to all of these sources in the show notes. Before we hear from this week's guest, I'm excited to let you know that advanced booking for my new programme, Time for the Things That Matter, has opened. This short, time-friendly programme, which will start running on the 21st of June with just 20 places, will help you transform the way you think about and spend your time. Let's face it, no one tool is going to do this for you. We have to dig deeper and be more intentional if we want to craft a life well lived. But it doesn't come easily, I know. If you want to feel more time rich, get more of the important stuff done, and have more time for the people and things you love, then all the details are on my website. And if you want to catch the priority bookings window, which ends at midnight on Thursday this week, then sign up to my mailing list now. General bookings will open on Friday. Okay, this week's conversation was a delight to record. My guest has an impressive international career in HR and has been right at the heart of some fantastic business adventures. Here's how she's managed it. This week, I'm talking with Patricia Galloway, a global HR leader with two decades of expertise in starting, scaling, and securing business success within the banking, technology, and engineering industries. Her passion is helping organizations to grow their performance and profit by developing their people. She's also a non-executive director with the Association of Foreign Banks and vice president on the board of the City Women's Network. Patricia holds a BSc Honours in Occupational Psychology and a Master's in Human Resource Management. She's CIPD qualified and a practicing C-suite executive coach with a niche for helping people in transition. Welcome to the business of being brilliant, Patricia. Thank you, Helen. I'm delighted to be here. So listeners have just heard a few brief headlines about your career, and we'll dig into that a little more very shortly. But can you tell us first something about yourself that doesn't appear on your CV that might surprise people? Well, I think the thing that generally tends to surprise people after having spent 20 years in in HR and banking is, and you did touch upon it, is that I started my career um, in industrial HR in an engineering company in the Midlands, so completely different. That was a standalone role and dealing with issues such as union recognition, changing shift patterns and setting up an employee council. I was fresh from my master's at the time, so very, very green. It was a baptism of fire for me, but I loved the challenge and I learned a tremendous amount. That's so interesting. It's such a different world, as you say, from the kind yes. of professional corporate office-based world. And, and I know from my own past experiences many years ago in consulting with manufacturing and engineering firms, it's a very different environment. And I'm sure, uh, as you say, it was a bit of a bat by fire because there can be all sorts of people activity that HR needs to wade in and deal with at quite short notice I imagine. Yes a lot. (laughs) And was that useful then later on that on the floor experience so to speak? Yes I think the fact that that I had such a steep learning curve in such a very different industry 
so early on in my career. I think it gave me the confidence, actually, that if I can deal with that, I can pretty much deal with anything. And because I was dealing with some quite serious issues, so union recognition with the GMB union at the time, I mean, that was quite a heavy topic with some very, very senior people from the GMB to be dealing with so early on in my career. But I did lots of research. I did a lot of prep and it was fine. And I realized it gave me that solid confidence in myself that actually I I can do these difficult things. That's such a good reflection to take forwards. Mm. And I I empathize. I started my career in retail on the graduate management training scheme at Harrods. And one of my first rotations, I was doing customer service for the wine and spirits department at Christmas. Mm. And a lot of wine bottles arrived late or a bit broken. And people got very upset. And actually, one of the best early groundings I could have had career-wise was how to deal with really upset customers day after day after day. It really builds your resilience and Mm -hmm. your relationship skills. So I totally agree all those early and really quite scary sometimes formative experiences really help build that confidence early on. Yes. So how did you go from there into other industries and progress up through the HR career ladder? So I've always held standalone roles. And as I mentioned, my first job was one and it wasn't intentional. I just seemed to have been a good fit for those type of roles. For my second position, I I moved from the Midlands to London and changed industry completely. I joined a startup, so very different. And it was a tech research company. And I was there from 2000 to 2002. So during the first dot-com bubble, And for me, I had a blank sheet of paper and it was my role to scale the business and we had rapid growth. We had to create everything from the HR side and it was fabulous. I really, really enjoyed it. And I I made some lifelong friends during that time as well. But like all bubbles, it burst and that had a real impact on our business. So Quite early on, I had to make redundant some of the very teams that I had not that long recruited. But this rapidly expanded my knowledge and my skill set in a really short period of time to go from rapid growth to decline. And I found it got me used to being around the table with the founders and key leaders in the business during some very, very challenging times. So those first two roles gave me a lot of breadth and depth very quickly. That's interesting because it sounds almost like when you're in anything that but steady state, so when you're growing very fast and it's all a roller coaster, or when there's a bit of a crisis or a downturn, actually, it sounds like those are times where you've then been presented with the opportunity to sit around the table with. Mm-hmm the business leaders, the people, the executives making the decisions. And I'm just listening to that and thinking that's quite different, perhaps to steady state when we're all very much more perhaps compartmentalized into our roles. So it's a a good way to look at challenging times or exciting times. Actually, it might bring you into more face-to-face contact with people at more senior levels. So my role in the tech organization stood me in really good stead for then moving into banking and being able to take a similar approach and be comfortable with quite rapid growth. Yeah. And it sounds like because of the experience you had in your first two roles, whilst you're an HR director and specialising in HR and people matters, you've got a very wide 
grounding in business management and business growth and the commercial yeah. side of things as well, which I'm sure is highly valuable and sought after when people are looking to recruit new senior HR heads. That's one of the things that I've always made a point of right from my very first role was to really, really understand the business that I work within, whether that's been engineering, tech and banking. And it's something I always encourage and work with my team members to do the same for numerous reasons. But some of the main ones is that it really helps you to build credibility very quickly with your peers and the leadership team. If you understand the business, you know, what do they do? How do they add value? How is it funded? Who are our competitors? How are we making a difference? And all of that can also help you spot talent very quickly for the business because you know exactly what the skill set is and then how those individuals are going to fit. That's great advice. And so if somebody's thinking, well, I'm in HR, but I want to demonstrate that I've got commercial understanding and, and expertise, mm -hmm. is it simply a case of just proactively asking a lot of those conversations with yes. people in meetings or do you need to think about developing that more formally? Well, you can do it in both ways and, and I've done both. So I've taken various courses as well, just personally. When I moved into banking, it was a very different language. So I did a lot of banking courses just so I could understand a lot of the terminology quickly. But I've always made a point of spending time and, and asking for that time from the heads or even number twos or threes in different business units to just sit with me and just talk me through exactly what it is that they do. What's their chain that they follow from the value add to the business and to speak to me in, in very layman's terms, first of all, and then I can build up the more technical jargon around that and just being willing to do that, being open and and putting yourself out there to say, I don't know, I don't understand. Can you explain that to me? Um, is a really, really beneficial thing to do. And, and people are fine. Most people are really open and they're happy to explain and talk about what they do. So that's something I would always strongly advise. Yeah. And I could imagine listening to that, that the senior leader that you're sitting down with, who's explaining stuff in simple language, I can imagine that's a helpful encounter for them as well, because every day they're having to explain perhaps complex strategies or markets, whatever, <laughs> in ways that everybody in the business can understand. So to have the chance to do that and hear how it sounds and see what questions come back, everybody gets something out of that pause and thinking and understanding time, don't they? Yes, yeah. And I think when you're fresh to something, you ask questions about why do we do it like that? Why do we get funding in that manner rather than a different way? And that's always beneficial for everyone to just pause and, and think, well, why do we do it like that? Oh, it's because of X, Y and Z. Yeah, exactly. And what have you found, if anything, difficult or stretching as a leader that perhaps has led you to acquire new tools or skills you've talked a little bit about the terminology and having to go and do some formal studies to really understand the mechanics of the industry is there anything else that comes to mind so as i mentioned i've covered london new york and tokyo and that's been you know, a real privilege to work across three very different cultures but when i started to cover tokyo that was quite a steep learning curve for me and it was relatively early on in my career and i was very conscious of learning the nuances of a different culture to try and not make too many slip-ups at least early on and in japan i found it was very much about understanding the hierarchy 
and respecting that. But also just down to the type of decisions that I should involve senior leadership with. And some of them were things that in the West, I just wouldn't involve a senior manager to make those kind of decisions. They would expect me or somebody more junior on their team to just run with it. But I realized in Tokyo that actually that would have been quite disrespectful if I hadn't involved or at least made them aware that they got a sign off on something. For me, I felt quite guilty sometimes. I felt like I was actually giving them more work to do. But it was just part of the culture and how to adapt and just work with them. That's really interesting. I've not had the the privilege of working in such a different culture, but I would have loved to. So it's interesting to hear you say how you had to rethink certain assumptions and work out what the accepted way of doing things are. And so you've worked across different cultures. You've had international roles. How do you organise your time at work? Are there certain habits you've developed that help you manage the demands on you in your role, but also manage different time zones and coordinate the time that you make available to people you're working with versus time for yourself to get stuff done? How do you make that all work for you? Gosh, I've tried so many different time management techniques over the years. Probably the one that's always stayed with me was from Brian Tracy's book, Eat That Frog. And that was to do the thing you're dreading the most first thing in the morning. And we're all guilty of procrastinating and putting it off and thinking I'll come around to it. So I've really trained myself to do that first thing. And then the rest of the day always seems much easier because you've just dealt with that really difficult thing. Apart from that, I work backwards when something is due. I always build in buffers for delays and dependencies on others. I try and plan a few months ahead and I don't multitask. I've learned over time for me, that doesn't work. I have the view, do one thing and do it well. And so I just focus on whatever that task is and take it as far as I possibly can before then passing it over to somebody else or moving on to something else. Yes. I love that you've read Eat That Frog because I refer to his work in my book, The Future of Time, although I haven't read his book in full. So I'm definitely adding that to my reading list for this year. But eating the frog is a great expression and it really works as a habit, something I've adopted recently too since coming across it. Just do the big, chunky, unpalatable sometimes or whatever you know is going to take real concentration and effort, get that done first and then you can cut yourself a bit more slack during the rest of the day or at least bask in your sense of virtue that you've done the hardest thing first which is the bit I enjoy about it and and in chatting to other people very recently I've been hearing both individuals but organizations also thinking more about that as people are back in offices and as they're managing hybrid teams and thinking about when they're together when and where people do their work one of the things that people seem to be more aware of is that need to think more intentionally about when do we need to set aside time that's not disturbed where I'm not available for meetings and to colleagues because actually I need to really focus on something that's going to move Mm -hmm. things forward and people starting to either be more transparent and open about that individually about our own time habits but also across teams as well people saying okay we're not gonna have calls between eight and ten in the morning or 
after three o'clock in the afternoon and trying to manage that. Is that something you're hearing and seeing or just hearing different approaches? Yes. Yeah. I've always been very outcomes focused rather than looking at where you're going to work or when you're going to do it to try and pivot my team to look at what is it we're trying to achieve. And I think that's something that this new world of hybrid is pushing a lot of organizations to do and managers to do with their teams to really focus on what's the output we need to achieve and then work backwards as to how they're going to do that in terms of time allocation. But I've always tried to look at what's the end goal. And I think that really focuses our thinking and it keeps the way you spend your time much more efficient because you're always quite tightly aligned to that objective. Whereas without that, it's very easy to get distracted and to just lose track of time. Yeah, that's so true. I think just keep asking the question during the day, during the week, what am I focusing on? Why am I doing this? Is this what I want to be spending my time on? can make such a difference. It does. But the other thing that I also found that's been useful, and I do this with my team, is to say no to really look at what are all the activities that are building up and what can you say no to and what's adding value, what's helping you with those end goals and what are nice to have but are actually just going to chew up time in your day and not add value to the output and also to just your career development. There's so many unseen side tasks that you can get sucked into. I often see with my team, HR is is one of the departments that are often asked to get involved in planning social activities, for example. And while that's all very nice, rightly or wrongly, it's not going to enhance their career, but it's also not that highly valued when it comes to their perception by other senior managers in the organisation. So that's one of the things that I always help them to take a look at to say it's one thing to be on the social committee but you don't need to be the one that's that's running these things yes that's really good advice and i know firsthand how hr can be called upon for a whole range of stuff that doesn't feel like it's on your strategic hr agenda exactly Um, but somebody thinks you're collectively the best people for the job so you've described a little bit there how you help your team members think about what they're spending their time on are there other things that you do in your senior HR role to coach leaders or colleagues about making best use of their time yes again it's for me a lot of it is focus and determining what it is they're trying to achieve so when I'm coaching individuals it's usually about some point of change either they've just taken on a leadership role They want to move industries. There's some form of transformation within their life that's happening and they want some advice and guidance on that. And with that, I do just try and bring them to be very clear and to really articulate what it is that they want to achieve. What's the end goal that we're looking for? And then to be quite precise in how to work backwards from that. And then allocate the appropriate time for that. because Otherwise, it becomes a nice wish list. So time has to be carved out that they'll actually do the activities that that are necessary to get to that end goal. Yeah. And I guess sometimes part of that conversation is saying, if life already feels incredibly full, what what is going to come off the table to make space for that? 
And that's something that we often find difficult individually and certainly collectively as an organization. And that's something I worry about in organizations is that we're very used to adding new initiatives and new projects onto the agenda, but we don't always take stuff off the agenda when really we should. And I think that comes back to prioritizing again, to deciding there's a huge list of things that we'd all love to work on, but actually this is what we're going to focus on. This is where we're going to put our energy. And you do find that in organizations, it can be a whole variety of different projects running at the same time. So it's trying to work with your leadership team to really carve out what's the priority and how much time and energy and effort is going to be put into that, that we're asking the other departments to support. Yes. And how often would you revisit that with the leadership team? Is it something you just do at the start of a new initiative or is it something you know you do regularly every couple of months, every six months? I've always done that, sometimes formally, but sometimes informally, just to check in with the key leadership team on how their departments are coping. Is there a sufficient resource, whether that's people, but also time to appropriately support the project that they're working on? And sometimes there is, and sometimes we need to make some changes. But I try and do that where I can relatively early on and quite frequently so then you can make a a shift and you can do a quick change in the planning before it runs for too long and then you start to face issues yeah because there's that whole sunk opportunity cost where people in all sorts of famous ways throughout history have not let go of something because of the amount of time and effort and money that's been invested so far yes exactly and thinking back over your career and the work you've done and all the resources that have helped you along the way is there a particular book or podcast or talk that you've really enjoyed got a lot out of and would want to recommend to others I've just read a fabulous book and it's called the future of time I'm very serious though what I love about your book is that it doesn't just set out the problem but it also offers workable solutions so we are all acutely aware of the problem but it's great to have those solutions and the accelerating pace of change you know as as we've talked about is having a huge impact on our time but what organizations need the most are, are practical ways to prioritize the important over the urgent and to remain productive amid a mounting time pressure but as a HR practitioner I really love the toolkit at the end of the book and the step-by-step guide for reworking time at an organisation-wide level. I think that's something very new. There's a lot on how you can manage time as an individual and how you can manage time with your team. But I love what you've done to just step back and look at how an organisation can work together to be so much more productive and to be a much healthier place to work by collectively taking a look at how we spend our time. Thank you. Thank you for that lovely overview and endorsement. I really wasn't expecting that. I was waiting to hear which other author you were going to recommend or a piece of work. But that's great. And and thank you for helping listeners get a good sense of what's in the book and and how it can help you if you're working in HR. And I'm really glad you enjoyed the practical side of it because that was something that felt really important to me. I love books that do a brilliant expose of something that's not quite working right, but I always feel really frustrated when they leave the, so what do we do about it to the last few pages? So I was determined not to do that, but 
I will happily admit writing that third part, because it's three parts, part three is about how do we fix broken time cultures. That was probably the hardest thinking work I've ever done in my life. (laughs) It's not something that just plops into place easily. And how can listeners connect with you after the podcast if they'd like to get in touch professionally? Oh, they're very welcome to connect via LinkedIn if they want to just say a a few words about why they'd like to connect and just reference the podcast, then I'm very happy to connect. Brilliant. Thank you very much. It's been a total pleasure having you on the podcast, Patricia. Thank you so much for talking about your fascinating career, how you've moved across industries and built up all your commercial and HR expertise and work with organisations at different stages. It's been really fun talking with you. Thanks so much for being a brilliant guest. Oh, it's been a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me, Helen. Patricia shared such nuggets of career wisdom in that conversation about how we gain confidence by doing things that seem really daunting or difficult, about the different kinds of situations that can help us grow our skills quickly, and about how to gain credibility and a seat at the table with senior leaders. That technique and book that she mentioned, Eating the Frog, works brilliantly for your productivity too. I now save my less cognitively demanding, low-value activities, such as browsing social media or pinging a few emails out for after I've eaten my frog, as a little dopamine fueled reward to myself for putting in such good brain effort early in the day. And asking yourself, what are the nice-to-haves that are filling up your day, is a great question too. Those low-value activities I just mentioned are probably a classic example. What are the nice-to-haves that are cluttering up your time? I'm learning to gradually pare down my to-do list to the few most important, valuable activities that will really help move things forward. And in my view, that most definitely includes having fun too, by catching up with former colleagues and clients, exploring some new possibilities and celebrating successes. Right, that's it for this week's episode. Next week, it's school half term and it's also the halfway point for series two. I'll be picking out some top tips shared by my guests so far and some favourite anecdotes and quotes from some of the brilliant books I've been reading this year for my 2022 reading challenge. The week after that, my guest will be Ben Higgins, who is Managing Director and UK Head of Human Resources at Société Générale, one of Europe's leading financial services groups. And he's also Chair of the City HR Network. Do join us. I hope you've enjoyed this week's episode. If you have, please do share it with friends and on social media and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts to help other listeners discover the podcast too. All the show notes are at helenbeadham.com forward slash podcast. Join me next week for another conversation about the business of being brilliant. Brilliant.